0: Assassins, political intrigue, hatred against someone who authentically believes Jesus Christ rose from the dead, it sounds like a major attack against the cause of Christ. How did the Apostle Paul handle it? And what can we learn as we face the challenge of a humanistic, secular society today? Let's look with our study leader, Dave Wordson, for the answers in Acts chapter 25, verses 1 through 11. The Western world is a society of unbelief. If you were to go into a secular courtroom, for example, and try to explain to them about your faith in Jesus Christ, many of the secular politicians would look at you and they just kind of scratch their head and they'd say, you know, I don't even know what you're talking about. I mean, you believe in Jesus and what is all this stuff about Jesus? How many of you at work, you're trying to express your faith in Christ, and they understand the idea of going to a building every week on Sunday. They understand reading from a holy book. They understand singing and praying. But when you bring it out into the marketplace, when you begin to talk to them during the week about the fact that you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that you believe that he really did rise again from the dead, they start scratching their head and saying, you got to be kidding We got a lot of our young people back from university. On the secular university campus, unbelief is just assumed. Agnosticism, you can't know. The stories in the Bible are exactly that. They're just fables. They're just mythology. It's all just something that people made up, and it's nice. People need it for a nice little religion. But it's just assumed on the secular college campus that it's not really true. And you've got to live life realistically. In other words, you need to just try to make the best you can and, and try to carve out the best life that you can. But this stuff about Jesus isn't real. And so you have this secularist that's kind of scratching their head. Some of them don't understand it. Some of them might get very angry about it. It's amazing how people that think something is just a story can get so angry about it, can get so vindictive, can come down on you so hard. You know, that would be very perplexing, this whole approach the secularist has. This idea that someone's saying, How in the world could you ever believe it? In fact, every one of you in this room, from the smallest kids to the oldest adults, are wrestling at one time or another with your life with the question Maybe I am a fanatic. Maybe this whole thing about Jesus is just a story. Maybe this life is all there is. Maybe I am the weirdo on the block. And maybe these people that just go out there and live to have a good time and don't worry about Jesus and they just make money and they raise kids and they leave their homes and go out with somebody else, whatever it might be, that's what I need to do with my own life. Those ideas are ideas that I have in my own life at times and they're ideas that all of you wrestle with. And the incredible thing about it is that that the Bible, contrary to what we might think, knows all about those secular ways of viewing things. In other words, it knows all about a secular politician that just kind of scratches their head and says, man, I can't understand what in the world you're talking about. The Bible knows all about the professional religionist. You know, religion's a big-time business. And the Bible knows all about the person that puts on the beautiful robes and has the big positions and makes a lot of money. But if you ask him, do you really believe it? Ah, no, I don't believe it. I just heard about a bishop in England, one of the big bishops in England, in the Anglican Church, that said, I don't believe in the virgin birth, I don't believe in the resurrection, but who cares? Big deal. I still believe in Christianity. You know, that's very disconcerting, unless you're really into the Word of God, because you'll find that the Word of God knows all about these different kinds of people. And it will expose what they're really like. And today, we're going to go back into the book of Acts. And I want you to turn to Acts chapter 25. And in chapter 25, we continue with the Apostle Paul's trial. Remember when we left the Apostle Paul, he was languishing in prison for two years because Felix, the Roman governor, the Roman procurator, was unwilling to act justly. He was unwilling to do what he knew to be right, and that was that Paul was innocent and he should just let Paul go. Well, instead, he let two years go by, he just kind of stalled things and left Paul in jail. In around 59 AD, 59 or 60 AD, Felix had messed things up so badly in the Palestine that Rome recalled him. You see, what you need to understand about the history of this period is that the land of Israel is a boiling cauldron. The Jews are chafing under Roman rule. One of the major reasons they're chafing under that rule is that it's very unjust. Felix, for example, we learned that Felix was paid off by brigands, by bandits that would rob throughout the country. We learned about his immorality. And contrary to what a lot of people think, in business, in politics, in every walk of life, if you're immoral, eventually you'll destroy all that you worked hard to get. We live under a, a grave misconception in our society. And that is that if you're successful, if you're talented, if you have ability, if you can make a lot of money, if you can act very well, if you're a great dramatist, if you're a great writer, If you have genius, it excuses immorality. You can act any way you want to. And a lot of us in our society have the attitude, just as long as they can perform, I'll excuse their lack of morals. And what I want to share with you is that eventually, your morals will corrupt and pollute and destroy you physically, intellectually, in every way. The wages of sin is death. And it's not just God zapping people with lightning. It's the reality of life. If you act contrary to what God has designed, eventually you'll destroy yourself. And the tragedy that you'll not only destroy yourself, you'll destroy your family, you'll destroy the business associates you have. My brother was just sharing with me about someone that was an executive that tolerated rank immorality in their corporation. They knew about it, but they turned their head. They never did anything about it. And they let it go by for several years. They just about bankrupted the entire company. You see, the way that we are morally has profound influences On everyone that we meet, our families, the people on the block, throughout the entire political system. Felix was immoral. And eventually, his immorality, his injustice, caused thousands upon thousands of people six years after we have the account in our chapter today. Six years after the whole country of Israel exploded just the way the ancient Near East is right now, ready to explode. And the Roman legions came down and there was butchery like you would not imagine. What I want you to face is that the Bible is dealing with reality. Now, Festus is the new governor. He's just come in. His job is to try to clean up this mess that Felix has produced. And he's a man of action. He's one of these administrators that jumped right in to a situation and is going to really try to do something about it. And thus we read in verse 1 of chapter 25, three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea. Remember, Caesarea is on the seacoast. And Festus went up 60 miles to Jerusalem where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. Two years have gone by. Now, can anybody remember what the Jewish leaders wanted to do to Paul two years earlier? What did they want to do to him in Jerusalem? Remember back in chapter 23, there was a group of 40 assassins. Now, the tendency is for us to say, well, man, the world is so different today. And we get very frightened by it. What I want you to understand is that the world has always been like this. And the Bible is dealing with that kind of a real world. It's not a make-believe world. Two years earlier, 40 Jews said, we won't eat, we won't sleep until we kill this man. And it was only because of massive military might that Paul was taken to Caesarea. Two years have now gone by, and the Jews have not forgotten their vendetta Against Paul. You see, we have a tendency to feel that people really aren't that bad. That people really won't harbor a hatred for two or three years. That people get over things. They don't. These are nice religious people. The Jewish hierarchy, if you met them on the street, wore beautiful religious garments. They conducted beautiful religious ceremonies. They were tremendously religious. Religious. But they hated Paul. They hated him so much that even after two years, they still wanted to kill him. And they were unbelievably cunning in the plan that they wanted to execute in order to get him killed. What they're going to do is to capitalize on the inexperience of a new governor. And they're going to tell that governor, you bring the prisoner Paul from Caesarea. Bring him up to Jerusalem because we need to try him there in Jerusalem. It's a religious case. Let us try it. Their plan is, as Luke exposes, was that on the way of being transferred in verse 3, they would ambush him along the way, and I've driven that in a car. There are tons of places you could get ambushed. As you move from Caesarea up into Jerusalem, you move from this very flat plain up into these massive boulders. remember driving there. One of the Israeli friends of mine was telling me how the tanks could barely make it through this area. It's large, rocky formations. Not very high hills. Maybe 2,000 foot hills, which is pretty high for us. With massive boulders and then forest, there would be a lot of places where they could easily waylay Paul and do away with him. So what we're dealing with here is the rough and tumble of of murderous plans of secular politicians, and let's see what's going to happen. They urgently requested Festus to have Paul transferred. But in verse 4, as we start out this chapter, Festus is an impartial judge. And he's not duped by these religious leaders. He's able to see into their plan. And he answers in verse 4, Festus answered, Paul is being held in Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me and press charges against the man there if he has done anything wrong. Now, I don't know whether Festus had read some reports from Lysias and from Felix about the potentiality of Paul being ambushed, I don't know whether he was just prideful and he didn't want to give in to the Jews and go up to where they lived and try the case there. Instead, he was saying, we're going to try it on my own territory because I'm the boss. It might have been a combination of all of those things, but we do start out the case with Festus being a secular judge, a secular politician who's fair, who's not prejudiced, who's going to deal with the case in fairness. And you're going to meet unbelieving people, secular people that don't believe in Jesus. They might even just have a ho-hum, who cares? I can't understand all that kind of thing anyway. And yet they might be very moral. They might be very just. And what I want you to understand is that you need to thank God for that. It means that God doesn't let us be as bad as we could be that God in his grace pours out upon all men, and right now God doesn't allow people to be as evil as they could be if God just took away his hand. And Festus, so far in the chapter, comes across as a secular Roman, and yet he does have a sense of justice, he has, has a sense of right. But what I also want you to understand is that an unbeliever's comprehension of what is right and just And the same as a believer can be quickly changed. I want you to look at verse 6. After spending 8 or 10 days with them, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. Now, what do you think happened during the 8 to 10 days that he was in Jerusalem? How do you think the Jerusalem leaders treated him while he was in Jerusalem? I'm sure they wined and dined him. I'm sure they took him to the best plays. I'm sure they took him to the best games in the Colosseum. There was a big Hippodome right below the Jerusalem temple. I'm sure that all the high priests, Ananias' his whole family had him over to eat. They buttered him up because there's a marked change in Festus' attitude. The way Festus hears Paul's case... In Jerusalem, it's different from the way we started out. And I think Dr. Luke is giving us a lot of insight into human nature. And you're all going to face this kind of thing. Some of you work on school boards. Some of you work in school administration. Some of you are in businesses up in Dallas. Some of you work here in businesses right here in Midlothian. You're going to be dealing with this kind of thing, spending seven or eight days trying to get people to change your view, trying to get people to get you to follow the way they think. And what this chapter faces us with is that it's hard to be impartial. It's hard to be just. What I want all of you to understand about reality is that we talk a lot about justice. We talk a lot about being fair and how altruistic we are and how unprejudiced we are. If you don't know how serpent-like your heart is and my heart is, then you'll play a con game that'll even fake yourself out. And that's kind of the way Festus is. Festus starts out as a secular man that I think really had a good sense of Roman fairness and Roman justice. And Roman law on paper was a tremendous gift to humanity. The Romans were geniuses on paper at making a just judicial system. In fact, the American judicial system is built in its constitutionality very much upon Roman thinking. But what I want to understand is that what a society puts down on paper... And what is lived out in life can be totally different. And it can easily be influenced on what happens during 8 to 10 days of being wined and dined. And so Festus sets up his court, brings Paul in, and in verse 7 it says, when Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him which they could not prove feel this with Paul. Here's a prisoner that's been confined for two years. He's brought into the courtroom, they sit him down, and all of his enemies gather all around him. The idea is that he's encircled. I mean, it's like being in a wagon train where the Indians are attacking. And man, you're being assaulted. I mean, they're really emotional about this. They're saying he's an insurrectionist. He profaned our temple. He's an insurrectionist against Caesar. He's a rebel. I mean, they're getting hotter and hotter, just like in the trial earlier. Remember when he was tried in Jerusalem, they just about had a war over him. They almost tore him apart in the courtroom. Now you have this picture of this man of God that is surrounded by all of these accusations. And then in verse 8, we have Paul's opportunity. Then Paul made his defense. And Paul says very clearly, I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. You know, Paul was an incredible man. Paul could say to, the, to a court of law, on every one of the charges that I'm being charged against, I have not done anything wrong. You see, someone that would paint Paul as being someone that would reject all Jewish scruples, would make a mockery of the Mosaic Law. It's not understanding the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul would write a book like Galatians that would say, if you want to tell me that in order for someone to be a son of God, they have to obey the law, I'll curse them for that because that is a curse, because that would plague them to eternal death, because no one will ever be justified by law. But if someone else that was Jewish came to Paul and said, Paul, I'm a Jew culturally. I like the clothes I wear. I like the kosher food that I eat. I like the holidays that I keep. Paul would say, so do I. And I've kept every one of them from my youth, and I will continue to keep them till I die. As a system of salvation, Paul would argue very strongly that Gentiles never had to obey the Jewish law. But culturally, Paul had no problem with the Jewish law. That's a distinction that's very hard for us to understand. But Paul could honestly say to a Jewish accuser, I have not spurned the law of Moses. And second of all, he could say, I did not blaspheme against the temple. I did not desecrate the temple. I never brought a Gentile into the areas of the temple that a Gentile is not allowed. And finally, Paul could say, I have never been a rabble-rouser against the Roman government. Now, that's a very important thing. We've talked about this in the past, but I want to share with you. The powers that be are ordained of God. If you fight venom with venom, you just fuel the whole thing. You become just like what you're angry against. If you get angry and you get vindictive, and you say, let's get them, you just become part of the whole thing, the whole corrupt thing. Instead, we need to let the love of Christ, like Paul did, reign. And as we'll learn in this chapter, that does not mean that you just let people push you right over. It doesn't mean that you're not intellectually keen and legally keen, but it means that you're not vindictive that you don't let it become a personality issue, that you don't start slinging dirt. And our church family needs to pray very, very much that we will be protected in a very difficult situation. In fact, Paul's situation was much more intense than anything we would have ever imagined. Paul, our example of a man of God, could stand in this court of law and say, I'm not a rabble-rouser. You see, that becomes your greatest argument. You see, even though there might be all kinds of injustice and unfairness around you, if you're a man or woman of truth, if you're a man or woman of fairness and gentleness and godliness and power, it doesn't mean that you'll be acquitted, but it does mean eventually you'll be on the right side. Because God's kingdom is going to rule and reign from C to signing C and for all the universe. And that's what Paul realized, and that's what gave him control, that he didn't fight fire with fire. Instead, he was able to calmly deny the charges against him, not get emotionally upset and angry, and start to blaspheme them. Instead, he could quietly state his case. Now Festus had to respond. The Jews made all these accusations. They couldn't prove any of them. Paul very conscientiously in verse 8 defended himself, but look at verse 9. Festus wishing to do the Jews a favor. Now this is where everything changed. Festus started out with the Jews asking him to do him a favor, but Festus rejected the favor, and he had Paul kept him in Caesarea. Now, in verse 9, now he wants to do the Jews a favor. That's what 8 or 10 days of whining and dining can do to you. Now Festus's desire is not for justice. It's not for fairness. It's not for the objective execution of Roman law. Instead, now, it's political. It's going to be the expedient thing to do. And so Festus says to Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? Now Festus says it in a very cunning way. He says, Paul, I will still be the judge. I will still be the one who will hear your case. We're just going to hear it in a different arena. We're just going to go back to Jerusalem. And there's a lot of credibility to what Festus is saying because as he listened to these charges that were being made, a lot of the charges were religious charges. They were theological things. And so Festus could easily say to Paul, what better place to decide a religious issue than at Jerusalem, the capital of religion in in Palestine. But the reality of that was the surface. That's the way it looked like on the exterior. But what about inside? The reality of the situation was that Paul probably would have never made it to Jerusalem. The Jews probably would have killed him on the way, and Paul knew that from two years earlier. Second of all, if the real crux of Festus's view had changed from justice to wishing to do the Jews a favor, when he got up to Jerusalem, what would keep him from just being handed over to the Sanhedrin which if the Sanhedrin could prove and decide, really not prove, but just decide that he had blasphemed their temple, they could kill him for it. The Jewish Sanhedrin could execute capital punishment for someone that profaned their temple. And so here we have Paul faced with an impossible situation. The Roman governor is now saying, Paul, let's go up to Jerusalem. Try the case there. If Paul goes up there, he would probably be killed, if he made it. So what does he do? And this is where we have Paul being very, as wise as a serpent. He's as wise as a serpent, but he's as harmless as a dove. And here we read in verse 10, Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court, where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving of death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. And what Paul does in this case is he begins by saying, I am in the court where I need to be. They are accusing me of revolting against Caesar, of ceding insurrection all over the empire. Tragic, really, for the Jews, they had overstepped themselves there. If they would not have gone on and accused Paul of insurrection against Caesar, they would have had a stronger case for keeping him in Jerusalem. But you know, it's an amazing thing that God's hand is moving through this whole chapter. And that's one of the things that I want all of you to realize as we deal with all this human imperfection, all this exposure into into human frailty, I want you to have a deep sense of control because God's hand is moving everything. Nothing's catching him by surprise. Even the Jewish opposition isn't catching him by surprise. You see, the Jews overstepped themselves when they said that he was guilty of rebellion against Caesar. Paul's case was impeccable. That would mean he was in Caesar's court, and if he was guilty of rebelling against the emperor, then that's where he ought to be tried. I also want you to see Paul's total honesty. He says, Festus, you know that I have not done anything wrong. Now that's incredible gall. But it's honest. Paul looked right at his judge, his secular judge, and he said, Festus, you know and I know that I haven't done anything wrong at all. You know the amazing thing about that is Festus knew that. Because later on in this chapter, he'll tell Agrippa we could have let him go if he didn't appeal to Caesar. But the tragedy of that is when I used to read it as a kid, I used to say, man, why did Paul blow it and appeal to Caesar? But now after learning a little bit about people and growing a lot older in my life, I realize if he didn't appeal to Caesar, Festus would have never admitted that he was innocent. You see, Festus got off the hook by having Paul appeal to Caesar. What Paul does is very honestly and very humbly, he says, if I've done anything wrong, I'll even die. If you can prove that I'm guilty of a capital offense, I'm not afraid to take the punishment. But he says, I'm going to be tried in the court where I ought to be tried. He was not acting illegally. Instead, he was following a very skillful, a very just path. As a Roman citizen, he had the right to have a capital offense case tried in Rome. He was in an impossible situation in Caesarea. And so he says, "Okay, I appeal to Caesar. Now we change gears. Because now Festus, this Roman politician, got off of a big problem. In other words, he doesn't have to turn over an innocent man to the Jerusalem Jews who would kill him. And then he'd have that on his conscience. But he's also out of the dilemma, if he would have let Paul go as a new governor, the Jewish leaders could have revolted against him and he would have lost his political position. There's an unbelievable humanity in this. And Festus, when Paul claimed, let me go to Caesar, Festus says, boy, that's the perfect solution. I got off the hook. And you're going to deal with people like that every day. The, the funny thing in this story is now he's got another problem. He's got an innocent man that he knows is innocent, he knows the charges against him don't add up to anything. But the man has now appealed to Caesar and guess what a Roman procurator had to do in order to send someone to Caesar. He didn't just send him to Caesar and say, would you listen to this man's story and see what you think about it. You don't do that with emperors. You've got to write out a prairie. You've got to write out a dissertation. You've got to write out a pronouncement of the whole case. And Festus is scratching his head. He's got all these angry Jews yelling at Paul. He has Paul very quietly say, I'm not guilty of anything. And it goes round and round. Festus is sitting there. Now he's appealed to Caesar. What in the world do I write in this statement to the statement to the emperor? Well, God always has an answer for that. the Lord sends an expert to him. In verse 13, a few days later, King Agrippa... King Agrippa was a a young Jewish king that controlled the northern part of Israel. In fact, he began by controlling the anti-Lebanon area, and then Caesar gave him several cities around the Sea of Galilee. In other words, he controlled that northern area of Israel, and now that the new governor has come, he's going down to butter him up, really, just to be honest with you. Just like when you have a new corporate executive come into your company, then people have them over to eat, and people will come and visit, and all the salesmen come, and they try to make the acquaintance of the new men in the block. Well, Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Cessari to pay their respects to Festus. Now, Bernice was King Agrippa's sister. Agrippa was her brother. She was a year younger than him. And the Bible is very realistic because all over the ancient world they knew that this couple was living in incest. As a brother and sister they were living as if they were married. So we have some really nice people that are coming. And some of you that think the Bible doesn't really know the way people live, the thing that amazes me, it still amazes me, is people still try to play games with the Lord. They come to church on Sunday and act like, you know, God didn't know what really goes on during the week. Who are you kidding? God can forgive you of anything. The blood of Jesus Christ can can overwhelm the foulest sin. But please don't play games. Don't think that you can pretend. Because the world of the Bible is the world the way it really is. King Agrippa and Bernice are living in rank immorality. And the unbelievable thing about this is King Agrippa was a religious expert. In fact, if you get uptight about religion now, guess who chose the high priest in 59 AD? King Agrippa did. The fellow that's visiting Festus, the new governor, is the one that appointed the high priest in Jerusalem. If you think things are bad now, just think about that. Some of you that are ready to say, man, God doesn't know what's happening. Man, look, whole, our whole society's caving in. I don't know what's going to happen to our kids. Listen, the Bible knows about the way the world is. You need to make a decision about the way you're going to live. And I need to make a decision about the way I'm going to live. We need to decide, are we going to live differently? Are we going to live for a different value system? Don't let the fact that the world is so sinful and corrupt cause you to get frightened and say oh no what am I going to do it's time to get tough it's time for you to face the world as it really is and make some decisions about your own heart and your own family and your own life whether or not you're going to live with integrity and don't say it's all up in North Dallas it's right here hanky panky injustice immorality stealing, lying, King Agrippa and Bernice were involved in all that. Bernice went on, in six years after that, she became the mistress for Titus, the Roman general that burned Jerusalem to the ground. She loved him dearly. In fact, she trekked all the way to Rome because she loved him, but political expediency caused him to throw her out. Just exactly what will happen to every mistress today. When push comes to shove and men start deciding about their business and about their families and about their position in society, your beautiful, passionate moments will suddenly go like that. And that's what happened to Bernice. But now it's early. Now she's living with her brother and she comes down to visit Festus. Now here we have this secular Roman politician who started out being kind of just, but now he's wanting to please the people. We've got this Jewish king. He's kind of Jewish. His Jewish claims are not real strong. But he's kind of Jewish, and he is the number one religious authority in the land, and he's living with his sister in incest, and they're going to be the ones that try the Apostle Paul. If you think things get messed up today, if you're wondering whether God's in control today, then think about the test of faith that the Apostle Paul was facing. So Festus says, Grippa, I've got a problem. Now Festus explains the whole situation to him. Look at verse 16. I told Paul's accusers that it is not the Roman custom to hand a man over before he has faced his accusers and has had the opportunity to defend himself against their charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case but convened the court the next day, and I ordered the man brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes that I expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion. And I want you to get this. It's the point of the whole passage. And about a dead man named Jesus, who Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss at how to investigate such matters. So I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there in these charges. But when Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear this man myself. And Festus replied, you will hear him tomorrow. I want you to think really hard about this. College student, mom and dad, boy and girl, Festus was a secular Roman. He was a secular Roman. He lived for power. He had somewhat of a sense of justice. And Festus did not think that he understood theological issues. But I want to share something with you. He understood what was really going on a lot better than the religious authority. When he looked at Agrippa and says, man, they started arguing all about their religion and about a dead man that Paul claimed to be alive innocently, in his naivety, Festus put his finger on the whole difference between religion and biblical faith. And I want all of you to think real hard about that. Because every one of you, myself included, we either have a religion or we have a faith in someone that's conquered death. I mean, Midlothian's a very religious city. So is Cedar Hill. So is Waxahachie. So is Mansfield. This whole area is full of religion. Church is really in. Man, you need to go to church just to make it in business. And you see, we give a lot of lip service to, oh yeah, the resurrection. I mean, Easter's coming now. We're getting to the first of the year. We're going to start towards Easter. That means cantatas and beautiful songs. And what I want to ask you very strongly, is it just a religion to you? And that's a decision that only you can really make. You see, Paul was on trial. You know why Paul was on trial? Not because he was a religionist. You don't languish for two years in a prison because you're super religious. You languish in prison because you really believe something. Now, people can believe something fanatically that's wrong. And you have to decide that. Maybe Paul was a fanatic. Maybe he was wrong, but at least face the issue strongly. And what the issue was, the Apostle Paul believed there was a dead man who came back to life again. What do you believe? I want you to think about that. You know, most of you are going to take about 20 or 30 years. The young ones that are in this audience, most of you young ones are going to take about 20 or 30 years trying to come to grips with this idea of death. There's some of you that are 35 to 45 in our church family that are going through all kinds of crises, and the root of it all, you're realizing that you're on the bottom side of the curve. And there's wrinkles that are coming around your eyes, and you just can't play basketball like you used to, and you start realizing, you know, about 35 years old, you start realizing, hey, I could die. The nutty thing about that is you could have died when you were six. I don't know why we suddenly think we might die when we're 40. You might have a whole lot longer to go than the 3 year old in this group. We know that. We know that up here, but we don't know it emotionally. Most of you are going to spend your whole life emotionally running away from the reality that you're going to die. Some of you are going to blow your families apart because of that. You don't want to grow old. You're going to want to go back and play high school again. You're going to want to go back and and go back to college again. You don't want to play the game at the age where you are. You know why? Because you're dying and you're afraid, really afraid. And that's why we need a resurrection man. I want to be honest with you, life really is a bummer. If we're all going to die, that's it. Man, Tinseltown in North Dallas doesn't help that much. You can go to the Galleria till you're blue in the face. If you have a heart attack there, it won't help you, you'll die. And you might die right in the middle of Lord and Taylor. And Lord and Taylor will just go right on selling materialism. Nothing wrong with any of that unless you're building your life on it. Unless you're using that because you're running away. You know why Paul was a man of peace, of contentment, of togetherness? Because he wasn't afraid to die anymore. He wasn't afraid to die. I'm not not saying that that we want to die. That's totally anti-biblical. The Lord wants us to live this life. But the scriptures tell us that Jesus came to deliver those who live all their lives in fear of death. And the very fact that you're afraid shows that you're a lot different than an animal. That ought to tell you something. Eternity is written on your heart. And Festus really went to the root of the whole issue. The guts of Christianity, the crux of Christianity is this. There was a man named Jesus. He lived and he died and he rose again. Do you believe it? If you really believe it, it'll change your life. If you really believe that, you'll never be the same again. You'll start moving towards becoming the man or woman that God wants you to be. And it's very possible that some of you, all that you've got is a nice little culture. And the thing that hurts me very much is as a pastor teacher, you see, I move through town and I move around this area and I can see people that were here at one time and then they've wandered away. I can see people that hate my guts because I make them feel guilty. But you know the thing that makes me weep at times? I'm serious. It makes me weep because I've had funerals of some of those people that spent their whole life running away. And you know, all I can do at those funerals It's preached to the living. I can declare the good news to the living. But what do I do about that person that's lying in the box because they ran away? You see, I don't know whether you're born again. Only you really know that. I don't know. You don't know whether I'm really born again. You see, that's something that takes place really deep here, but I want to share with you what the guts of it is. Is if I were on trial today, if you were on trial today, and people started examining our life, if people really started examining and trying your life, what would they decide was the crux of your life? Would they make a statement, man, I've heard all kinds of religion here, and man, there's something really strange. This person says there's a man named Jesus who was God, who lived on the earth, and he died. He died a Roman death. He was executed on a brutal cross, but this person, he is nutty. He believes he's a lie. You see, in the first century, that carried a lot more craziness than it does in our society, because our society has changed into a nice little symbol, a nice little religious story. But it isn't that. If I were to die today, which could happen in one split second of time, I'll find out whether or not what I've taught you is true you ever stop and think about that in a split second of time you'll find out whether you're safe in the arms of Jesus or whether the agnostics were right and that's an existential choice that every one of us have to face nobody can get away from that you say Dave why do you believe what you believe because as we've gone through what I've shared with you today Paul doesn't come across to me like a liar. The Bible itself presents life just the way it is. I've met Festus. I've met the Jewish leaders. Some of it's right inside of me. How about you? As we've been studying the Word of God, have you been listening today like a sharp two-edged sword? It starts to just cut your life to smithereens, discerning, exposing what it's really like. And if you'll stop running and just open your heart, you begin to realize that this belief in the resurrection man is the only choice that makes any sense at all. I ask you, if you were Paul being tried by Festus and he talked to you, what would he conclude about the crux of your belief? what would he decide that you really believed and that's a question only you and God can decide your friends might think you're foolish that people at work might not understand our whole society is under a stupor acting like we're never going to die and yet scared to death of it and Paul was a man that when he was on trial Festus the secular politician scratched his head and say all this religion I don't understand but there's one thing this man believes there was a man named Jesus who was dead and this crazy prisoner believes he was alive. Little did Festus realize that powerful Roman procurator that Paul would go down in history as one of the greatest men that ever lived and Festus two years later would die an insignificant Roman procurator that didn't make hardly any difference at all in the land of Palestine. What's going to be said about your life and mine?